Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener. And that's what you do. You listen. On today's show, <laughs> I'm just kidding, right? What? Am I going to fucking introduce the guest in the middle of a global pandemic? What, am I just going to gloss all over that? Fucking, this is wild. Crazy times, my friends. Crazy fucking times. I've never seen anything remotely like this. And maybe it's because I'm a little more awake, I'm 33, and you know I've got a kid and whatnot. So it's never felt more so like I had more skin in the game than right here and right now. And, and I'll tell you what, it's, uh, it's weird, different, weird when things affect something globally. You know what I mean? Like inevitably, even if America goes through some like huge, huge issue, you know, you can sort of hinge the economy and people's welfare on the backs of like that everything else around the country is sort of status quo, you hope. And thus like, well, if there's normalcy surrounding us, inevitably we'll, you know, return back to sort of a normal pace once things are remedied. And yet in this, it's like, hey, maybe we'll look to Canada for, oh God, they shut, Canada shut down. Hey, maybe uh, Italy wants it. Nope, shut down. Well, then, I, you know, it's a lot. I don't really want to bother China, but uh, no, China too. China is where it started. Oh, Mexico. It's there, there now too. What about, well, who's another ally? The UK. Nah, UK doesn't want nothing to do with us. Oh, all right. Cool. So the whole world shut down. The whole fucking world is shut down. It, it's wild, actually, to talk to people who are older than me, who have who've definitely seen some shit. Who are like, oh, this is, yeah, this is the most extreme thing to ever go on in my sort of, uh, my existence here on earth. So it's wild. And it's, uh, speaking personally for me, and this might be an understatement, but I don't like it. (laughs) It, 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 This just gets in the way of all my plans. And God, do I have plans. Not to mention, like... It's just, uh, it's an eerie, unsettling feeling. And I don't like to disrupt a routine, and I don't think anyone else does. But the reality is people are sick and dying. And while there's a good chance we're going to survive this thing, we got to have precautions. Got to do the right thing right now. Even though I have, uh, you know, ants in my pants and all I want to do is friggin' go work out, sit in a steam room, 
and cough on someone. That's what I want to do. I want to go from a from a gym <laughs> to a steam room to a uh, to a, a to a dance party with 500 people in a place that the fire general says there can only be 350 the fire marshal like i want to be packed in tight like sardines yeah i wonder if we'll ever be able to return back to normalcy in the respect of like i mean god knows if you've had any kind of young social life like most of us we've been in some pretty tight quarters while uh you know getting our freak on on a friday night you know, trying to go to the bar, trying to go to the club, right? That's like the whole thing. I mean, if you go to a club where there's like five feet in between you and the next person, you're like, this is a shitty club. There's no one here. They're struggling. They better sell more uh, Ace of Spades and Cristal. You want it tight, right? But now after this, are you like, I fucking... Not that I go to clubs anyway. I'm a grown-ass man. It'd be ridiculous for me to be... That's like my biggest fear. Uh, above my wife leaving me because it would, you know, it would just... It would really... You want to talk about fucking up routine. But, you know, I, I love her very much and I don't want her to ever leave me. But above the, <laughs> the, the, you know, the emotional and psychic damage and trauma that that would occur on me and, and my family, what seems... Second to that is the idea of me having to be a single person in my mid-30s trying to socialize. Are you fucking kidding me? And granted, yeah, like I have like a little very minor like traces of quasi-celebrity that could perhaps boost my uh, numbers in some respect of like dates and procuring uh, some sort of romantic encampments. And yet, it almost makes it worse. Like, I just don't, I don't, and no shade, you know, no tea, no shade, no lemonade. I'm not trying to, you know, I know we all want to meet someone out here, but, but the prospect of being like in my mid to late thirties or forties at the club and trying to like make eye contact with the right person and hope that we can stir up a conversation. I can perhaps buy them a beverage or they buy me a beverage, not trying to assume gender roles. And then perhaps we exchange information and go on enough dates to possibly have some sort of uh, physical entanglement. Like th this just seems impossible. No, thank you. I don't want to be on Hinge or Bumble at 40. And if you are, fucking go get it, ma'am or sir. Do it up. Go find that special someone. And wow, that's awesome because the whole idea of it intimidates me slightly, but I'm impressed. But yeah, it's pandemic time. Viruses don't give a fuck. Everybody's inside. Social media is bringing out the worst in people. And it's going to be, it's going to be a moment. Listen, some might say, and I don't mean to get political here because this is not a political podcast, some might feel as though we're lacking a bit of leadership during these times. And what I would say to you is look to your boy, Josh Peck, because I will lead you. So if you're looking for any sort of reassurance, Uncle Josh is here to tell you this. Everything's going to be okay. Listen, Coachella, I know you had tickets. I know you're sad it's rescheduled. It'll come back around. March Madness, listen. I had a big Buick deal for March Madness. I was ex I love Buick. They're a fucking beautiful company, and I wanted to work for them. That's gone. You know what I mean? We're all suffering. 
We're all suffering, even your Uncle Josh, but the reality is. So we're going to make it through this. We got to stay inside. The old people need it from us. They fought world wars for us. One's in Vietnam, a couple in Korea, and an assortment of other bullshit. In addition to the fact that old people are fucking cute and deserve our respect. And they are at risk. So we got to contain. We got to chill. I'm basically saying this to myself, by the way, because, you know, listen, I get it. We got to relax. It's all going to be fine. Give it a couple weeks, a month, two, max. And then we're going to slowly ease back in. And if not, it's been a great run. No, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I look around sometimes of all of us in our human suits walking this like ridiculous existence that we don't know if it was like created completely randomly or if there's some like higher power at, 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 at the helm of this thing. And it's like, while I really want to continue this this odd experiment we call Earth and being a human, there is a part of me that goes like, if this was it, our, all right, I think uh, I'd love to do some more yoga and, you know, to see my kid graduate high school or college. Let's be honest, high school. <laughs> Sorry, Max. <laughs> but inevitably, it's like, I don't know. It's all, it's all, it's all weird and odd. And I hope everyone's got enough toilet. Why do people hoard toilet paper? That's what I want to know. Like, if anything, you should be hoarding wipes because this is just a huge, if, if this virus has taught us nothing, at the least it has taught us about people's disgusting hygiene. I mean, you think you're clean back there taking that dry ass paper and trying to mop up your your disgusting waste from your derriere? Are you fucking out of your mind? There is no way you're clean back there. It's an impossibility. We all need to be using wipes and we need to be doing it now. And the fact that the VP, Mike Pence, is not talking about this, I think is a complete oversight. I want wipes. In every single bathroom, pharmacy, uh, takeout, delivery, hospital, bank, and anything else that's open. I think there should be mandatory wipes. Don't have to be brand name. I don't, I'm, I'm okay. The reality is I'm, I'm dedicated to, I, I like my, uh, you know, my man wipes, what dude wipes. I'm not, yeah, I like those. And I think Charmin makes an excellent one, but listen. Regardless, regardless, by the way, if you say irregardless, you're not the smartest man or girl. You're not smart because that's not a word. So feel bad about yourself Um, and check it. Go look it up so you can like, you know, you can make sure that you're not smart. (laughs) On today's show, we're going to get through this, everyone. Uncle Josh is here to tell you we're going to get through this. Just sit tight. okay? stock market's going to come back. Everything's going to come back in due time. 2020 might be a wash. We might have to fucking, you know, we might have to be like, all right, you know, we learned a lot. Because the reality is, my friend Ryan Holiday, who I've had on the show twice, always talks about stoicism. And I like to romanticize that at my core level, I'd be okay going back to being like the poor kid that I was growing up. 
I mean, I wasn't poor, but I wasn't wealthy by any means. And we definitely couldn't make the rent many times. But like, you know, anyone who's sort of spiritually evolved or, or seeking some respect wants to believe that if we lost sort of the, uh, the pleasures of the flesh, the money, the power, the prestige, the, the you know, the delicious foods and the, the comfort and luxury of our everyday items, that we'd still be okay. But we're kind of getting put to the test. Like, I mean, not really. Most of us are camped out in our beautiful homes with with streaming, you know, internet service and and Netflix and Hulu and and the rest of it. But what I'm saying is, is like in the face of adversity, in the face of everything you know within a normal setting being uprooted and messed around, and the prospect of perhaps being inconvenienced for a long period of time, can you get through it? Right. And this, I'm asking myself this because I, the first couple of days, I'll be honest, I'll tell myself, I was like disillusioned, disbelief, wanted to just stick my head in the sand and say, you're all crazy. And then as soon as it dropped and the stock market fell and the, the fucking sky started falling, I was like, oh shit. And then I was just overcome with fear and worry and projection because that's the way my brain works. I don't think I'm alone in that. But now that we've had a couple of days to sit in, I realize that like, thank God, you know, assuming this doesn't go for years, I, like many people, will probably be able to withstand the storm, that it would behoove me to help people who are less equipped to get through a difficult time like this and to reach out a hand because this affects people very deeply and strongly, not only their health, but their well-being, their security. And there are so many people that are less lucky and uh, fortunate than I am. And it would behoove me to pay it forward and make sure they're okay too. And use this as a time to make sure that if the sky ever does fall and my Instagram account gets uh, deleted for some reason out of my control, then I'm going to be okay. So I'm using this as a great learning lesson. And I hope you do too. On today's show, Tucker Max. Tucker Max is a, uh, he became famous for a book he wrote called I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. Um, He, as we talk about, kind of became this like uh, interesting counterculture hero. His book was massive and on the New York Times bestseller list and he was, you know, he he became sort of like this bro hero for a while, but has transitioned into this like really wise sort of self-exploratory dude who's done an incredible amount of work on himself and now has started a huge company that helps other people write books. Uh, specifically, we talk about it most recently, David Goggins' book, which was friggin' massive and I don't know. I don't know anyone who wouldn't want to read a book about David Goggins, but um, yeah, but Tucker is just, uh, he, he's a really talented writer, speaker, and I think his entire journey from how his first book was written to inevitably where he is now is super interesting. So I was stoked for him to be on the podcast. And then we talk about plant medicine for like the last 20 minutes. So yeah, get into that. Enjoy Tucker Max.
Uh, Dude, I was so confused when I got here. You get like there's rings on every door and everything's locked. I'm like, I'm like, oh, of course we're in LA. <laughs> it's weird up here. Well, it's, Austin is like no one. You don't have the problem. You don't have to lock everything and have rings on everything. You know what I'm saying? Even offices. Like I was like, what is going on? What? Like, oh, of course. I listened to you on James Altucher's show, yeah. and you said that moving to Austin was one of the top three most important things you've ever done. Yes. Why? Uh, so, um, well, one was getting out of LA. Like, it was toxic for me. I hated it here. How come? The people. Yeah. <laughs> In the entertainment <laughs> business specifically. Fair. And, and like, because uh, you know how it is, man. Like, if you're not a sociopath or totally empty narcissist, it's really hard to be in the entertainment business. Like, if you have actual emotions and a soul. Sure. Because those are the dominant, like, paradigms of people. And, like, it's just like, fuck, man. It's so draining, right? And then also just Austin is the opposite. It's so full of so many cool people. It's like uh, there, there might be more awesome people in L.A. like as a raw number, but the ratio in Austin is way better. It's like 10 awesome people to every asshole, and here it's like reversed. Right. At least, at least if not 20 to 1. Here. Is Austin, and I love Austin, is, is Austin like a weird – suburb of Silver Lake meets Tribeca that's just implanted in Texas no, or does no, it have no, no, no. Texas it's, it's, in um, its bones? It definitely has Texas, right? So yeah. uh, even though I've been there 10 years and I have seen so many Californians move, right? I hear that. And, and what's funny is 20% of them go back. And it's the ones who are like the super narcissist shallow people who are like into the club. They're into all the accoutrement of L.A. because none of that's in Austin, right? Mm -hmm. And so they can't find their group of people. And because like if you think about it, Austin is actually a terrible place geographically. Like, How so? Well, because it's, it's scrubland. Dude, Texas is an awful, awful state geographically, But man. isn't Austin like the green part of Texas? Man, that's like saying it's a clean part of a toilet, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no. So, like, seriously, like, uh, this guy, General Philip Sheridan, who's the guy who kind of chased Pancho Villa all around America, he said if he owned hell in Texas, he would live in hell and run out Texas. Solid. Like, that's how awful it is physically. That should be in the license plate. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? No, but the cool thing about it is, though, is that it selects out of people who aren't there for the right reasons, mm. right? Because there's no—you're not on a coastline. There's no mountains. Like, it's green compared to, like, the desert, but it's not like a—it's not like a— it's not like East Tennessee where it's like amazing forests and whatever. There's no physical reason. To, it's Africa hot in the summers. Dude, it's a terrible place to be. And so if you're there, you're there because you want to be around a specific type of person who congregates there, who's willing to give up the amazing geographical stuff. Like, like the weather in L.A. is amazing, right? No matter what you say about L.A., you cannot argue with 70 degrees and sunshine every single day. Best in the world. Right. No doubt. Yes. And like the cool breeze. You know, I walk around. I was like, oh, man, I forgot how great the weather is, right? But the problem with that is it attracts a ton of crazy people who will stay only for weather, mm. which is like the price you have to pay to be in L.A. You don't have to pay that price in Austin. No one... No one there is there for the weather or the geography because it's awful, right? It's funny you say that uh, recently, and I think it's because it's my kid's pediatrician, my friend Liz Allen, who worked in the Obama administration, who was on the pod recently. 
and my friend Michelle, and they're all from Buffalo. Right. And they're three of the greatest women I know. And I think it's because it's such a depraved, like, tundra Cold, of a place to dark. grow up. Why would you live in Buffalo? Right. Only if you're, like, the best people ever that, like, are only about family mm-hmm. and, like, having a nice, well-respectable life. Yep, Exactly. It's so funny. I was recently in Dallas, which is very different than Austin. And what I noticed was it was just a lot of buffets and urgent cares. Dude, <laughs> They're like, eat yourself into a fucking coma, and then we'll get you out of the coma at the urgent care. Dude, Dallas is a terrible place. Yeah, I know. It's it's uh, it's just right. Seriously, it's mini malls, and like I don't understand why anyone would live in Dallas. Do you, is there a border when you're in Austin where you feel like once you get outside the city lines, you're like, oh, I'm in Texas, Texas. Yeah, people ask, like, people like, where do you live? I'm like, Austin. Like, oh, Texas. No, 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 not Texas. Texas Mm. is a different place. I live in Austin. It's the perfect, it's kind of circling back to the other question. It's a perfect mix between like the red and the blue states, right? The good parts of the red state is like genuine people, everyone's nice, things are cheap. Um, like, uh, you know, things like that. And then, uh, but you get all the good stuff in blue states, which is like people are smart, people are ambitious, people want to do stuff, people, um, you know, like believe in progress, right? So you kind of get a really, really good mix and the two sides kind of balance each other. But yo, yeah, dude, like like, uh, you go an hour in any direction and you're in Texas. You're in like, you know, Texas, Texas, yeah. And do you think that's what attracts people like you or our mutual friend Ryan Holiday to a place like that or Aubrey Marcus? Yeah, I know. Aubrey lives in my neighborhood, man. Like I could almost hit – if I played golf like an awful person, I could almost hit a golf ball to him. Um, Yeah, so – yeah, I mean I think so, man. I think it really is like if you really want to be – if you want to be around awesome people uh, with that mix, I don't know of a city in America that's a better mix of that, right? Uh, I mean, I've been everywhere in America. I can't think of anywhere that, like, I mean, I can live anywhere. Like, I have no geographic reason to be in Austin. Dude, I, I only thought I was going to be there six months. I, when I left L.A., I had a book to write, and I, I literally drove downtown. Uh, this is in 2009. So it's kind of a, the, the, America was starting to come out of the bottom of the um, – the you know real estate issue, and so I go downtown and I pick like the nicest apartment building. I just walk in. She shows me this gorgeous place, and I'm like, "How much is it?" And she's like, uh, "What was it? Like nine hundred dollars?" No, she said nine hundred dollars, and I said, "Man, you know, it's I'm coming from L.A., right?" Right. And, and and I was like, "Man, that's a lot weekly." And she goes, "Weekly? That's monthly." And I was like, I started laughing at her. I was like, oh, oh, sign me up. And she's like, well, but six months, it's going to be like 200 more dollars a month. And I'm like, stop it. I don't care. Get out of here. Yeah, we'll be just fine. <laughs> this beautiful, gorgeous two-bedroom place and like a windows everywhere. I'm like, oh, this place is amazing. And so it's like, and I just stayed, dude. Like I, I re-upped my lease and then I re-upped again and then I re-upped again. And after three years, I'm like, I guess I live here. Yeah. Because I had met so many cool people. And it's like, I'd been in New York. And New York's great, and LA, you know, is LA. But I just, I'd never been around so many cool people. It's so relaxed and so cheap, and so like you can just be a human being there. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. I. It's funny. I. I love Austin. I've been there three or four times, and my wife, my sister-in-law, was living in Nashville for about a year, year or two, and. You know, my wife's family, like, they love country music, and they're just, like, good, lovely white people. Mm-hmm. And Nashville's been on this fight. I don't know whether it's due to Instagram, but everyone in my and their fucking sister wants yeah. to move there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, 
Oh, I don't know if you actually want to no, live You understand there. that. My wife's from Nashville. Okay, we so spend you a get lot of, I totally know Nashville very it, well. It's like, it's lovely. Mm-hmm. It's charming. It's a street. It, Nashville is one street. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, I'm in Tennessee. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you who should live in Nashville. If you have like a Jesus fish on the back of your car, you should totally live. But you want to feel cosmopolitan. Nashville's the city. Solid. It, like that's the city. Everyone I know, I know a lot of awesome, smart people in Nashville, but they are the type who like their core identity is Christian, right? Mm-hmm. It is like, I'm not talking about people who go to church and no, no, no I'm talking about like, this is my thing. Like they want to know what you believe before they do business with you. That type of person, Nashville is the epicenter for them. Hectic. Yeah. So no, not a lot of hot-blooded Jews like myself. <laughs> I Nashville. don't think so, no. So uh, tell me if this was misreported. You were born in Kentucky? No, I was born in Atlanta, but mm-hmm. I kind of grew up in Kentucky, yeah. Got it. Mm-hmm. And then when did you make your way to South Florida? Well, my, so my parents were divorced when I was a year and a half. And so my dad uh, ended up going down to South Florida, and he's been there for basically my whole life. He had mm. opened a bunch of restaurants. You probably have grandparents in South Florida since you're Jewish, Please, right? Are you kidding I, me? Obviously. God's waiting room. You know what's funny is, dude, I, I'm 25% Jew. My dad's half Jew. And my grandfather, obviously, is full Jew. We had no idea until I did 23 and Me. Wow, mazel. Because, seriously, Congrats. His, his parents— Came over uh, in one of the early persecutions before, like, the big one in World War II. And uh, anglicized their names, moved to L.A. I mean, he grew up here. My dad and my grandfather uh, just said, all right, we're American now and picked Catholicism for some reason. Wow. Never told my dad or granddad they were Jewish. That's wild. I know. I'm 25% Ashkenazi Jew. Had no idea. So the Max is a German Jewish. Hungarian. Hungarian. It's some anglicized thing, but yeah. That Mm -hmm. sounds right. Listen, I did 23andMe. I came back 98.9% Jew, okay? (laughs) You think a couple of my cousins fucked in the 1800s? For sure, dude. (laughs) For sure. sure. Was it Neanderthal? (laughs) Did you have anything? Because I had like 1.5% of that. I wasn't sure the percentage. They were like, you are more so than most. Yeah. Yeah. Weird, right? Mm-hmm. So, and what's your life growing up like during your teen years, your adolescence? Uh, so it kind of sucked because I didn't really have um, – my parents were fairly broken people who just – like they weren't good parents. They weren't bad people. Like they didn't beat me or, you know, put anything in my butt or anything, thank God, like that, right? But they just weren't <clears> – <throat> they weren't emotionally – connected to themselves. So they just couldn't be good parents. Right. So Mm. like I had a very lonely, um, kind of isolated childhood. And it I mean, I was a weird kid because I was pretty good at sports and I was smart, but I didn't like the jocks because they were all meathead idiots, at least in the schools I was in in Kentucky. And I didn't like the smart people because they were all kind of like socially isolated nerds. And so I was like, but I wasn't that outgoing either. So I was like this weird dude that kind of walked in the middle that never really fit anywhere, but I wasn't really, like, I didn't deal with a lot of bullying or any of that kind of stuff. Um, So, like, I just dealt with, like, a pretty lonely childhood that had parents who, like, just weren't there for me very much, you know? And then I had a grandmother who was a yeller, so there was enough stress that it was stressful. Um, But, yeah, no, dude, it was... It was not a fun childhood. What were your parents just more narcissistic? Yeah. Like no, yeah. they were like, like uh, so they're both boomers, right? And like you, they could be the dictionary definition of boom. This is how boomer they are. So you know the movie Blow? Sure. Sorry, George Young, who guy who invented or yeah, basically Johnny brought Depp, Coke, right? Ted Demi. So my parents lived. They met in Manhattan Beach. My mom was a flight attendant for Pan Am. My dad was a stockbroker. They met at one of George Young's Coke parties. 
great. Doesn't get more boomer than that. Good party. <laughs> right, right. My wife's from Manhattan Beach. <laughs> uh-huh. Wow. Okay, so they're two boomers having a good time. Mm-hmm. They have a kid, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden that kid's getting in the way of their good time. Basically, they, they, got, they actually did get married because it was still that time. And then um, my mom got pregnant through birth control. And like, I mean, honestly, they didn't want me. Like, and it wasn't like a, they fulfilled their quote social obligation, but it pains me to say this in a lot of ways. It's true. They both probably would have been better off without kids and neither one of them had another kid. <sighs> yeah. I, even though they both moms, my mom's been, I think on her third marriage, my dad's on his fourth and never, ever had another kid. Romantics. They believe <laughs> in the institution. When, uh, you know, and we'll get into it because I know you've done an incredible amount of analysis. I assume we're therapy. recording, right? Because we just jumped in. Okay, cool. Oh, All no. Right. Turn turn on the levels, <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> um, so I know you've done an incredible amount of analysis and therapy, but huh? was there a time in your youth where you had that first moment where you like the suspicion came over you where you were like, this is going to fuck with me. Like this is, this is probably like, was there any awareness? So I think maybe the, the first time I can think of what leaps to mind is when I was 12, um, you know, my mom was always going through problems and having her sort of breakdowns or whatever. And, um, she was, she had convinced me that I was a crazy one in the problem. Right. And I'm sure I was like, not that good of a kid at 12. I wasn't bad, but I wasn't that good. And, um, and so she took me in to see a psychologist, this woman named Pat Wellens, who I think is still practicing in Lexington. She's a saint. Um, and she like did a couple sessions, one with my mom, one with me, one with us combined. And then she, uh, did a private session with me and she said, Tucker, I'm going to tell you the truth. You're not crazy at all. Your mom has a lot of issues. She's not working through any of them. So what I'm going to do is take you on as a patient, and we'll help you. I'll help you work through your stuff as much as possible because you do have things you're going to need to work through. Um, but like, basically, I'm helping you because she par- paraphrasing. <laughs> Your mom's not doing the job. Yeah, it was kind of parenting in an interesting way, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, like, she was. Uh, she, there's a f- I, I, like I had just enough intersections with caring, loving people in my life where I didn't become like one of the sociopaths in LA, like running a management or entertainment company. Thank God. Mm. And so um, she was one of them. Yeah. So like I never I never met my pops and my mom is the best, but you know she was doing her best as I was growing up, and thus it resulted in like a lot of financial insecurity and whatnot. Mm-hmm. The byproduct of that is my defense mechanism was a deep-seated need for control yeah. because I was so powerless as a kid. Yep. So how did that sort of environment reveal itself in bad habits? Oh, dude. Well, I mean, like, you can go read all my first series of books and know <laughs> where mine is, right? Right. Mine's not about money or that stuff. Mine is very much about women, right? Mm. A lot of it. Not all. But a lot of it's about women. And, like, um, it's funny. <laughs> it's like— <laughs> Like, uh, 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 man, I spent pretty much, I want to say my whole, not childhood. It took, I, I, I had to hit puberty and then get a little bit decent with women, which I did. it took me to about 17, 18 to figure out what I was doing. Um, and then from about, I dated a couple girls who were awesome, uh, women and like, like, if I was at all emotionally stable, I would have married. There was one at 18 to 20 I dated and then one at 24 to 25 or 6. I could have married either one of them, amazing women. 
both have gone on to marry incredible guys and have great families and they were amazing. Right. <clears throat> but I wasn't ready. Um, and, uh, and so then like about 25 is when I really was like, Oh, like instead of feeling my emotions or understanding any of it, it's like, I'm going to go bury all my shit in as much pussy and alcohol as I can. Solid. <laughs> and so it's what I did, man. And it was like, everything in my life was, how do I get women to like me so I can hook up with them? And then looking back in retrospect, it's really clear that like um, like a, a, stra- a very common strategy for dudes to use is uh, if they felt abandoned by their mom, I'm going to hook up with a bunch of women and abandon them, mm-hmm. right? And so I was never like, oh, I love you and I'm marrying them or I have kids, nothing that. It was just like hooking up and then like they'd be into me sometimes. A lot of times they weren't, but sometimes but they, they were mad at their dads. Right, yeah, right. Oh, total, hundred percent. The dynamic with me and most girls at that age was, um, I'm lonely. Me too. I hate my dad. I hate my mom. Let's hook up. Okay, great. Like, wow. All understated subtext. None of it was above board. About twenty nine to thirty one, I started to kind of figure it out. But it was one of those things where it was like I was having too much fun. And it was too awesome in my mind that I was like, eh, what I'll like I'll I'll pay the price for this later, right? Right. Well, sex too is one of those like really insidious sort of addictions or coping mechanism things. It's like food mm-hmm. and like finance, like, you know, if you're gr- you know, super greed driven, right? Because we need shelter, uh-huh. we need to reproduce, and we need nourishment. It's yep. not drugs and alcohol right. where you're like, I can push this away forever uh-huh. and not wake up hungover. It's like even if you wake up with like someone who you shouldn't be waking up with. It's like it's fun. You shake it off, right? There's a coolness to it. People it, are gonna all, laugh. Mm-hmm. Say, do same with success. Like right. I, I mean, I know tons of entrepreneurs now, and I would say ninety plus percent of them, success is a way to avoid feeling the feelings that they don't want to feel. Yeah. You know, like which is that's way better than being a heroin addict, right? Like it's more productive, but it's you're still going the same place, right. running from the same stuff. So when do you make your uh, initial sort of pilgrimage to South Florida? I, is no, so after I was fired from being a lawyer in three weeks uh, and then went to work for my dad because he has a bunch of – he's been pretty successful uh, restaurateur and had a bunch of restaurants. He fired me in six months. So I moved down there full time because I visited him not that much. I would see him once a year. Are you old enough to remember the movie The Toy? With of Jackie Gleason and okay. Oh right. yeah. So Master like, Bates. Right, right. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. So, good. so I, I was uh basically my life with my dad was like the toy, except he had nowhere near that much money and didn't give me really any money. He had money, but like didn't give me any. And there was no Richard Pryor in my life that was fun. Um, but like it was I would see him for one or maybe two weeks a year, usually one, and that was it. And then I moved down there. 20, right after law school. So I was 25, 26. So it was like, it was, it was right before 9-11. Yeah. So it was 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was there for about a year and it was just awful because South Florida is the armpit of America. And it, like, I didn't do drugs. Right. And so it was like, well, what do I have to talk about with anybody here? Right? I wasn't right. old and I didn't do drugs. Where were you? Boca? Fort Lauderdale? Yeah, right. Boca. Boca. Yeah, Great. Which is, well, I mean, the belly of the beast for this, right? I lived there. <laughs> you did? Growing up. Hammock Point Elementary. No. Shout out. Yeah, I went there. I My mom and I would pop it back and forth between New York and, and Florida when money would run out. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And my grandmother lived in, in Delray. Yeah, so, yeah, I know it well. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I, I lived. My dad lived in Royal Palms. Had a huge house there until his third divorce. And that wife, Patty, kept that house. But, um... 
Yeah, it was. I was there for about a year and a half, two years. I hated it. It was the worst. And do you find like I found as a young man, and it, interestingly enough, it was like in the year leading up to meeting my wife that I felt as though I was at the height of my powers, where like I had sort of come into my own as a man, mm-hmm. where I felt like I'm the best I've ever looked. I'm the most confident I've ever been. And I was putting up great numbers. <laughs> How old were you at the time? I was 24. Okay, yeah. yeah. You met your wife then. I met my wife at 24. Or Yeah, I mean, we met at 24 right before I turned 25. And then you started dating? and then Yeah. Oh, wow. You're way more emotionally mature than me, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I got sober at 21, though. I'm a former child actor. I'm a fuck up. Yeah, right. So right. I just did it way too quick. Yeah, you did it quickly, <laughs> right. It took me a long time. So yeah. did you, when you were in Florida going through all this, did, is that how you felt then? Like, I am at the height of my powers? No, I was the opposite. I was depressed. Really? Genuinely, seriously depressed in mm-hmm. South Florida. That was the closest I've ever come to, I think, actual depression. I hated every single thing about my life. Yeah, not, there was nothing I liked. It was terrible, and but you were you're also sleeping with everyone and. Li- I mean, I was, ho- it, I was hooking up with the girls that I was the least repulsed by, mm. right? Because it's South Florida, so they're either on drugs and if they're doing coke or whatever, they're not into me because I don't have any coke for them, <laughs> and so like, or they're idiots because if you like are smart, you don't live in South at least at the time you don't live in South Florida, or they're you know Hispanic and but I don't speak Spanish, so like all the awesome hot Cuban girls like hey, nah, I don't care right <laughs> like, sure. so I had no like there was really no one for me to talk. There's random smart girls in Florida, but they like stay in because they hate all the same stuff I do. So we, we this is before Tinder, so we couldn't like connect meet each other. So it was just a hellscape for me, dude. <laughs> it was the worst, man. Man. And so then, but the and is this before you meet Miss Vermont? Or no, that was in Miss Vermont was the iconic South Florida girl. I mean, she was this. So, so to, for your, your listeners who don't know the story, I'll, super quick, I was in the. This is a treat, guys. Buckle up. Get ready, Kevin. <laughs> no, it's a sad story at the end. <laughs> it's funny on the way to a lot of sadness. Um, so I meet her like this place called the Athletic Club, which is like imagine like the the uh, the scene sturiest equinox in L.A. Like that was the equivalent in Boca, and like I see this because she's pretty hot. Obviously, she's got like a you know her baseball cap on, whatever, and like uh, she had on. Stetson Law shorts. And so I was like, okay, she either is hooking up with a dude who goes to law school there or she's smart. And so I started talking with her about that. Oh, I went to Duke Law, blah, blah, blah. And then like, um, so she, like, uh, we went to dinner that night, asked her out. Yeah, of course. She uh, was a pageant girl, had been Miss Vermont twice. Even though she grew up in Florida, she moved to Vermont to be Miss Vermont. Like Miss Vermont, US, there was two different pageant tracks, Miss, Miss America and Miss USA. She was Miss Vermont twice. And then, like, her platform was abstinence and sobriety. And then we got really drunk and hooked up in the back of her Ford Explorer <laughs> that night. And so then it was, like, 28 days I did. I think it was 28 or 29. I, I counted because they were they were wild and crazy in both good and very bad ways. Like, I took her. Uh, she'd never shot a gun, so I took her to a gun range. This is how smart I was at 25. I took a, a, an emotionally unstable girl to a gun range, taught her how to shoot. And then when we, quote, broke up, she put, like, I gave her, like, she took one of the targets home, you know? She, like, drew all this stuff on it and then, like, uh, put it on the windshield of my car after we broke. Yeah. (laughs) But it wasn't, like, a threat. It was, like, this weird, vague, like. A memento. No, she's (laughs) like, we had such a great time for 28 days and blah, blah, blah. Except then we fought and, like, it was, like, this weird thing. It was, like, at the time, I, like, laughed at her. 
now it's like I look back and I'm like, we were both just sad, broken people who were like trying to find some relief from our awful depression. Yes. Uh, it didn't work for either of us. Uh, but no, it was, um, that was basically South Florida, dude. I mean, it was, that's in a nutshell. Mm. And then when you wrote about her in your book, she sued you. No, her mom did. No. Yeah. Yeah, because she's the iconic pageant girl. Like the mom lived through the daughter, right? That's why I feel so bad for her is because like now especially because the poor girl had no shot, man. Like she had this mom who's like basically like, I don't know, has all this pageant stuff. So like everything that that the daughter did was because the mom wanted her to, right? So she wasn't living her own life or being her own self. And, uh, and so, yeah, no, the mom sued. It's funny, man, when I wrote the story, I sent it to her and I said, hey, if you want to write a response or, or whatever, I'll put it verbatim beneath the story on my own site so everyone will read both sides, right? Mm. I'm like, I won't change a word. You can say anything you want. I don't care. And she never responded, the daughter, right? Because I'm not emailing the mom. And so then, uh, like, MTV did this thing about me. It kind of blew up my site, and that's how I kind of became a writer. And uh, the mom, all I guess all the mom's friends saw it, sent it to her. And so the mom went to Katie. He's like, is this true? And, of course, Katie lied because that's what she's done her whole life with her mom because it's the only way she can get her mom off her back. Sure. And so the mom's like, well, then we're going to sue him. And then, like, it started this whole rabbit uh, or this whole chain of events. The New York Times, this was front page news at the time because it was the first time, like, uh, f- first big free speech case for, case for the internet. And so, like, the literally, the, the mom was a lawyer. She, her friend was a judge, issued a temporary restraining order against my site. It's called prior restraint in First mm-hmm. Amendment law. First time this had ever been done for a website. And, and like, basically, s- s- just th- the summary of this is, Prior restraint is essentially illegal in American law, except unless it's like a national security. Like you, like a newspaper can print anything they want, but then they can get sued about it. By law, you cannot stop them from printing stuff unless it's like printing the names of spies or something. Like the government can come in and yeah. say, well, yeah, that will, that's a national security threat. That's it, though. So this judge literally made me take stuff down. Not not suing for defamation or libel, right? And so the New York Times like interviewed all these big First Amendment uh, uh, scholars. lawyers, scholars, and they're like, this decision is kooky. Like, it makes no sense, right? And so, of course, the mom was t- – the judge was embarrassed. The mom was totally embarrassed, all this sort of stuff. I got these huge lawyers on my side. It was like this whole thing. And then it brought – it's what it's the thing that blew me up. Even more than the MTV thing was the mom suing me about this, right? I mean it was like – and dude, the best part was I was like I would love to go to court about this because in, in, in America, truth is the absolute defense to libel. And like I have pictures of all of this, of us together and like, you know, the, the I had the – the the gun target she shot up and left on my windshield. Good right? thing he saved it. How <laughs> <laughs> was I not going to say? They're going to show it to my friends, of course, right? Right. As a twenty five year old, this is the coolest thing ever, right? Right. Um. And so anyway, so, uh, yeah, that kind of that started the whole thing, and then um, then I just started writing the books, and they blew up, and then you know here we are. And what do you think? Uh, so it started. Your story started out on email chains mm-hmm. to my that, friends. Yeah. To your friends, which then became the blog, mm-hmm. which was kind of one of the first yeah, blogs. Yeah, it was, it was like one of the very first, right? And the only reason I put myself – I mean, dude, this is in 01, 02. This is back when GeoCities still existed. Like you had to learn HTML to have a site. 
And the only reason I put it up is because, like, I went to every publisher and every magazine and tried to get my stories published, and literally no one wanted to publish them. Like, the few responses I got back were the type of thing where it's like someone was personally offended, which I should have known was a precursor for what was to come. But, like, someone was like, oh, yeah, you should never write an email again. This is the worst thing I've ever read, like that stuff. And so, like, literally the stories that made up a book that created a new literary genre and sold millions of copies – they were like, this is the worst stuff I've ever read. And so I had to put up a website. I had to put – the word blog didn't even exist then. So I just had to put stuff up for free. And then it – like all the strategy everyone uses now, I totally stumbled into by accident. Right. And it worked. Did you – and you knew Ryan Holiday back then, right? No, 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 no. Dude, at that point in 2002, Ryan was like – Eight years old or something. (laughs) No. He's older than me. He started working for me. He was my first assistant. He started working for me in 07 or 08. But you were when he was in college. And you didn't do anything with American Apparel, right? No, no, no. So so Ryan worked for me for like a year, two years. And then um, he, I got him a job at The Collective, which is like a big management firm That's here. where I met him. Right. So exactly. So he worked for Aaron Ray there for about a year. Uh, and then, um, then from there, he went to uh, working for American Apparel. Yeah. Got it. So the blog starts to blow up and you start compiling these stories for the book. Mm-hmm. And to your point, and, and it's so impressive that you sold millions of copies of this book without any sort of like the institutional backing mm-hmm. that so many of these books see. What, what can you attribute that to besides the fact that it was a great book? The right, right thing at the right time. Mm. That's it. Like it's, dude. Everyone asks me, like, uh, how do I write a hit? And I'm like, well, first I've got to write a great book, but it also has to be the right message, at the right, at the right time. Like my, I mean, I own a publishing company now that helps people write and publish books. We did David Goggins' book, right, which was the second biggest memoir of the year last year after only Michelle Obama's, which wow. was like the biggest of all time. And like everyone comes to us now is like, yeah, okay, how much does it cost to be David Goggins? I'm like, nothing. There's yeah. no amount of money. If I could do that, I would, you know, do it for myself. Why would I do it for you? Right? There's no amount of money. David had the right message at the right time from the right person. Right? Yeah. Go be a Navy SEAL, lose a hundred pounds, and then fucking run a hundred miles a day. Become the toughest man alive. <laughs> right. And it, it become the toughest man alive and a paragon of old school masculinity. In a world where there are no masculine figures, right? And where masculinity is subjugated and dismissed. And so he is like, to people looking for it, a a paragon. Ten years before, no one would have listened to him or paid attention, right? It's a different thing. Same as me. If I was, you know, 27 now, I mean, I wouldn't be doing the same things. Everything would be different. But if you just, you know, transported me, my stories would get some traction. But they wouldn't in any way, shape, or form be have the impact they did because at the time I stood up and spoke a truth that everyone felt but no one was saying then I said it and a bunch of other people started speaking similar truths and now it's not a big deal to be like oh I hook up with a bunch of girls or I'm an idiot or I get drunk no one cares anymore that's not like a that's not a a controversial thing to do anymore Mm. you know what I'm saying and so um it was a hundred percent it's hard to Let's say 50% is you, you work hard and you have a, a, a dialed-in, really good message. The other 50% is right place, right time, right person. And what do you attribute? Uh, because that all sounds right, and yet I, I think if that book had any other title, even with the same guts, yeah, it would be easier to have passed it over. 
Like that title yeah. at Hudson News on your domestic flight to St. Louis, you're like, I got to pick this up. Yeah, I mean, I, dude, that, that was that title was came just organically. Like uh, I did some awful thing and I wrote a funny story about it at the end. I'm like, I hope they serve beer in hell, you know, just because like uh, recognizing that what I was doing was fucked up. And then it just caught like people like kept saying it back to me. And I'm like, all right, I guess that's the book title. <laughs> and how quickly out the gate does it start to succeed right away? Yeah, well, it did only because so it hit the bestseller list for two weeks in a row, but only because I had a big email list, right? I had put an email capture on my site and I'm like, I like I didn't even pay attention to it. I just sent out an email every time I wrote a new story. And then, like, when my book came out, I had, like, 50,000 emails. Like, oh, great. So I put it out. I sold 5,000 copies the first week, like, 3,000 the second week or something like that. And so it hit the bestseller list those two weeks. And then it fell off. And it got as low as, like, 900 a week, maybe six, seven months. And then that was in 06. It hit in January of 06. And then in May of 07, it went back on. Dude, that was all word of mouth. Word of mouth and... My, I still kept all my free stories up on my site, right? I mean, this is basic content marketing that everyone gets now. I honestly just fell ass backwards into it, and, and it worked, right? I, it's funny. I get so much credit now. People are like, oh, you're such a great marketer. Tell me all your marketing tactics. Looking back, I don't think all the shit that I did or that I did with Ryan and all that I don't think any of that stuff helped. In fact, I think it hurt. Like uh, the two things that mattered, right voice, right time, uh, and a bunch of stuff up free. That's it. And everything, because, dude, I, I always tell all our authors, we've done 1,500 books in five years, and I tell them all, uh, the only way you're going, uh, your book will succeed beyond, you know, the, the your universe of people is if you're, fr- the people who read it tell other people, right? Word of mouth. And so you've got to write a book at the beginning from understanding why are people going to read this, why are they going to like it, and why are they going to tell their friends, right? So from my... I didn't understand that when I wrote my book. It was just baked in. You mm-hmm. know, it was just I was standing up and speaking a truth that a lot of people uh, connected with. Uh, at the beginning, everyone was like, oh, this is just like me. And then as it got bigger, then a lot of younger people found it. They're like, oh, that's who I want to be, which took me totally by surprise. Like the idea that like young kids would look up to me as a party icon was like laughable to me. Like I, I like it was like, Honestly, unthinkable to me, actually, right? Because I, I was, yeah, I drank a lot and hooked up a lot, but I was no different than any of my friends. Like, I wasn't the cool guy among my friends at all. I mean, I'm just talking about normal dudes, right? But then all of a sudden, like, all these kids who hadn't done this stuff were like, and they never heard anyone talk about it openly and publicly with a real name. Then I became the god to them, and I kept trying to tell them, guys— you can do all, and girls, because shit, half my fans were women. I was like, you guys can do all of this. There's no magic about this, right? But like, and so many of them are like, oh, this isn't even possible. I'm like, wait till you get to college. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you talk about how you were miserable during this time in South Florida, and then you moved to LA, and the book comes out. Where are you? No, in- no, hold on. There's a big gap between there. Right. Like, so I moved to Chicago. I lived in Chicago for like five years after South Florida. Chicago was amazing. It was yeah. a perfect city to live in. For me at the time. So, yeah. Well, Chicago's a big city with Midwest people. Yeah. A big city, Midwest people, cheap. Everyone's nice. Like, it's funny. There's, It's not really true anymore, but especially when I was coming up, there's the, the stereotype that only dumb girls sleep around. And that's so wrong. Like, I made a living off of basically hooking up with tall girls because tall girls, like, no one wants to talk to tall girls. I'm not that tall, but I'm tall enough, right? Mm. And so I wasn't afraid of tall girls, even girls taller than me. Smart girls, right? Because like 
They, most dudes are intimidated by smart girls. I'm smart. I'm not intimidated by smart girls, right? So like you like once smart girls realized I was smart, then it's like they were like, oh, here's a guy I could actually sleep with and not hate myself around because he's dumb. Sure. Might hate themselves for other reasons, right? But not that. And then the, the other uh, was just like I would always like in a group of girls, I would never go after usually the hot one because like the hot one gets all the attention and she picks her friends to be less good looking for her for that. So I would always go after like girl two, three, or four, right? If there's six of them, girl two, three, or four are almost as hot, but they don't get the attention. And I talk to them and it, it like so that that whatever. Long story short. That's how I made essentially my living with women was those three underexploited territories. Mm. But like, dude, I mean, like Chicago is full of that. It's just um, smart girls, tall girls, and like girls who aren't the hot girl of their group. And it was amazing, dude. It was just like, it was the best, I don't know, uh, for a young dude who was totally disconnected from his emotions and using women and alcohol to run from them, I couldn't have picked a better place. Do you know the movie Beautiful Mind? Yeah, of course. And that's how Russell Crowe disproves um, who's, oh, right, right, who's right, right, right. the forefather, Adam Smith. Yeah. yeah. Or something. And he Comparative like, advantage, he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Right. I remember, yeah, yeah. And it's like, if uh, we I don't all think go, John Nash actually said that. I think that was for the movie. That was Ron Howard? <laughs> yeah. God damn it. Pretty sure, yeah. But it's like, if we all go for the hot girl, we're all going to sort of cancel each other out. But exactly. if we go for her friends, yeah. then someone will get, we'll all get laid. And we'll, you exactly. know, everyone's hooking up. Yeah, yeah. When the book comes out, where are you in your emotional life? Have you started this sort of journey of growth? Hell no, dude. No, you're still in the heart of it. And how quickly does, what's the turning point, right? To all of a sudden, you're now not just like this incredible Lothario, you're best-selling author Lothario. Yeah, so, okay, there's a couple, it's a a couple things to unpack. So, um, I wasn't even, the book and the stories and all that, like, I started writing those in South Florida when I hated my life. And so, all of that was a way to not feel my feelings, Right? It was a way to essentially do therapy without doing therapy. So instead of looking in and asking myself, why was I sad? Right? Why was I depressed? I was like, I'm just going to get drunk and act like an idiot and laugh. Mm. I mean, because sadness and laughter are actually right next to each other as emotions. Most people don't like, realize that. Uh, but they're, uh, they're deeply connected, um, which is why every comic – I mean, it's the stereotype. Every comic is like depressed, right? Because they're using comedy and humor to – to, as one method to deal with their sadness, right? And so, and I was no different. I mean, I, I just wrote funny stuff instead of being on stage, but the same stuff. And so, um, no, dude, I was 100% running from my stuff. Uh, now, like, what was the turning point? It did not, that was, book came out in, first book in 06. I really committed to this in, let's, let's call it uh, 02. Book came out in January of 06. I committed the end of 02, so it's about three years, two, three years. Then, um... The turning point for me, man, was, well, no, from there, so I might have started getting into um, therapeutic and self-realization processes, except I became famous for drinking and hooking up. Yeah, so what's that like? It's both the greatest and the worst thing ever. So it starts off as the greatest thing ever. The, 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 the metaphor I always use, or the example I use for people is, imagine that you've spent your life on a desert island and you're just barely eking out in existence, right? You're alive, but you're always hungry. There's never enough to eat and everything's hard. Now imagine you get picked up by a cruise ship and then they have like a cruise ship buffet and they're like, oh yeah, dude, eat all you want. Right. You're going to live at the buffet. And you're going to eat until you throw up, and then you're going to eat more. And yes. you're going to do it for at least a while, right? That's what it's like. You know this because you've been famous, right? 
dude, when you are not famous as a guy, it doesn't matter how good your game, and my game got really good, but you still have to go out and do things for women. When you're famous, women come to you. It's fucking amazing, dude. It's like this incredible, like it's not even a world you can understand as a guy because it doesn't matter how good you are in game. It doesn't matter how good looking you are. It doesn't matter how rich, whatever, right? You still have to do things. But then all of a sudden, women come to you. And almost all women understand this because, like, you've got to be a really ugly woman to not have been objectified at some point in your life. Mm. But no one objectifies dudes. Like, it's just not—no one cares about us. Penis is in abundance, right? Mm. And so once you start getting objectified, you actually—at least I did. I loved it at first because, like, especially for me, because I had this flood of women who were like— going to work out all their emotional problems on my penis, right? And I was down, dude. I was like, let's go. And uh, and it was awesome for like about two, two and a half years. And then you start to realize that no one actually gives a shit about you at all. None of these girls care about you. You are just a thing to them, an object, which is ironic because I was, of course, doing the same thing to them, right? Right. So it's not, it's going both ways. But I, I'm not anywhere near at the time emotionally mature enough to understand that. So then I start getting frustrated with my fame because I'm like, don't you, like, like, I'm like, don't you people understand I'm a person? And they're like, fuck you. We don't care about you as a person. We care about Tucker Max, what that, what Tucker Max means to us. But it, I wonder, do you think there's a difference? Because I think you said this on Aubrey where you said, if you want confidence, be competent, right? Uh-huh. Like being competence is, is attractive, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So you had proven yourself, like you weren't Tucker Max from Jersey Shore, yeah. like, or The Bachelor. You were a best-selling author, like, was that— did, Yeah, but that wasn't the was narrative Was it all the same? Me. That wasn't the narrative. I, I've never gotten credit for my skill as a writer, mm. partially because I never pushed that, right? I didn't care, but also because, like, I went around the system, and so most writers hate me. No, I'm dead serious. Like, this is a th- another thing I didn't believe until I heard it from other people. Uh, like, my one of my old PR guys, this great guy, uh, long, long story short, uh, he was my fir- second PR guy, but my first big real one. And, uh, you know, worked for a huge uh, firm. And he's like, oh, we're going to get, you know, a front page or, or a cover of Maxim, all this. He's like, obviously, because this is like at my height, like 08, 09. And then he, like, went in to pitch me. And he came, he's gay. And he came back and he's like, dude, I have never seen straight boys get angrier than when I brought you up at a pitch meeting. And I'm like, what? Why? He's like, it took me a while to figure out. But he's like, I realized they're all, they all hate you because they're envious of you because these are all dorks. Like most writers are dorks who are picked on in school and like writing was their way to have status and skill and ability. And the, the only thing that got them feeling good about themselves. And they have all accepted the system. Like these are all the, you know, the editors at Maxim or whatever. They never broke out as real writers. They wanted to be, Mm. but they never broke out as writers on their own, Uh, you know, like established writers of books and whatever. And here you are, and they see you as the jock that made fun of them, right? The bro, and you are succeeding in their field without following any of the rules they followed. And so, like, you are a complete threat to their identity, and they fucking hate you. And I was like, that makes total sense, and I never in a million years would have guessed that. Right. <laughs> never. Um, and so, like, I I never got credit for being a great writer from writers because, um, uh, I like, like they just – they couldn't, right? Because then they have, they have to look – it forces them to look at themselves, 
right? Where am I not being courageous? Where, whatever, right? And so that that never really happened. But like, what happened really for me, fame wise, is is as I as I as I started to kind of peak, I, I started to hate my fame and resent it because like I couldn't be a person and I couldn't grow and I couldn't evolve. Like, dude, I'll never forget this, man. I was in a grocery store one time. It was 10 a.m. Oh, no, I went to, I was in a grocery store. It was Whole Foods. And I was shopping, like, you know, whatever, doing a normal thing we all do in Whole Foods. And this dude comes up to me, and he was probably 20. And uh, he's like, oh, you're Tucker Max, blah, blah, blah. I wish I had my book, my friends. And this is before selfies, so he didn't get a selfie. But he's like, uh, um, dude, and then he kind of looks at me for a second. He goes, dude, why aren't you, like, drunks, you know, under a table yelling curses at people? And I'm like, bro, it's 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. Right. The fuck is wrong with you, man? Yeah. Like, that was like the moment. I use that example all the time because I'll never forget. Like, I was like, these motherfuckers will never let me be anyone but who they envision me to be. But that's not just you. That's, no, that's about, everyone famous. Everyone right. marries themselves to the image they fall in love oh, with. Oh, yeah. No, I got it. And I, I, I mean, I'm like, I, I recently over the last few years, I've been... um. I, I I do a lot of YouTube stuff, and I'm mm-hmm. in this friend group that's a you know a bit frat like, and we really bust each other's balls, right? right? But a we're all making money. Uh-huh. B we're all funnier than like well because it's what we do. Yeah. Like we're pros, and like everyone's either an actor or writer or some version of that. And so I'll be walking around, and a civilian will come up and start breaking my balls, and what I'll and it's totally in a fan way, but, but I want to say funny either. I, I want to say like who the fuck do you think you're talking to like. <laughs> And they don't know, and um, but they're so confused. Because they have this deep emotional relationship with you that's completely unilateral. But we're strangers. <laughs> right. And not in their mind. Right. No, in their mind, they, they've known you for 10 years. Yes. Like, they've grown up with you. You're like, you're a thing to them in their life. But that's the point, is a thing. Mm. You're not a person. Right. No, I went through all that. And then, all right, so so the the breaking point for me— I still hate talking about this. It's 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 ten, it's been ten years and it's still a little raw. Uh, the breaking point for me was I know the exact date. It was September twenty seventh, two thousand nine. I know the date because it was my birthday. It was my Jesus year birthday, and that was also the weekend that my movie came out. The movie about my first book, and uh, it didn't do very well. Like it was going to be a bomb, and, and I thought it was going to be a huge hit. And it, like, it, dude, it cracked my grandiosity. Like, it was the hardest. It was the first time in I don't know how long I actually felt some emotions. And, I, I like, I didn't just weep, man. It was, like, it wasn't a breakdown, but it was as close as it gets to a breakdown for me, dude. It was bad, man. I was I was in a hotel. I was in an A-loft in Tempe, Arizona. Like, dude, I remember the whole thing, like, like the the clear memories everyone has of trauma, this is like this is the same, and it seems so funny to talk about, right? Like, what a rich white person problem. Right. A movie was made about my life before I turned thirty five, mm. and it didn't do. It wasn't a blockbuster, and so that caused me to like, like it's hilarious to think about, but it's also a hundred percent true, dude. That was a deeply traumatic event for me. Because, listen, parents are two narcissists. My strategy was pretty narcissistic, obviously. And, like, uh, that broke it, man. It cracked it. And um, now it took from that point at least another year before I started therapy. I think it was a year and a half. And then, you know, it was a slow, slow progress to make any progress. Um, but that was the moment, dude. That was the, that was the moment that I knew deep down this wasn't going to work. And, like, all the fame— because like all the fame 
all the money, all the women, way better than being poor and broke and anonymous, but I still wasn't happy, right? I had, I had nothing I actually, I didn't have anything approaching the emotional inner life I wanted. Because you think when you're poor, broke, anonymous, oh, if I'm rich, uh, famous and and uh, uh, love uh, the rich and famous, everyone will love me, right? You know as well as I do, it doesn't work that way at all. But you, some people like me, have to go through it before you believe it. And then all the feelings that I was trying to chase away with with fame and women and money, they were still there. They were just waiting for me. <laughs> you know, it's funny because you're right. It is the ultimate sort of champagne problem to have a movie bomb. <laughs> But there is no feeling, and I've been in some fucking stinkers, because I can assure you that no one who was involved in Cats was saying, I don't think this thing's going to work. They thought it was going to be a hit till the Thursday night before Friday when it opened. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, the and early see numbers. And and like, oh, shit. And they're like, oh, we're fucked. Yeah. And also, it confirms your suspicion, because you were on set, and you were like, is this specific? Does everyone want to see a cat's, you know, motion picture? Uh-huh. And it confirms your worst instinct, but you were lost in the crowd and you just felt like, well, if the producers say it's great, it must be great. For me, I was lost in my own image of my greatness. Not yeah. greatness, my own image of my greatness. And dude, I mean, it, it cracked. Like, I, I was lost in my own grandiosity, dude. Straight up. So what does that journey look like in when you enter therapy? Like how, if you can tell from like, if you can give me a beginning, middle and end, where did you start to where did you I, There's finish? no, I, it, I don't think it ends. Right. Right. So I'm definitely not. But uh, so I, I start, I tried everything. I tried all the easy therapies, right? Mm. Well, first I got in like amazing shape, washboard abs, blah, blah, blah. Didn't solve, didn't solve my emotion. Uh, you know, like uh, I fixed everything else in my external life. And then it was, that's why I took a year and a half. Cause I'm like, all right, I'll fix all the, uh, none of that really worked. So then I eventually, I, it took me about 10 or 20 therapists to find one I connected with. Um, because I'm like the type, if I go do it, I'm going to do it right. Like, I didn't want to find some, I, it would have been so easy for me to find, like, some younger girl who, like, was enamored with me and I could just play, you know, the game. I didn't want to do that. I want I like, I found a, an older woman, smart, who's seen everything, been through everything, like, would call me on my shit, right? Did you think it was important to have, because it's an interesting connection, right, that, like, what you felt you were lacking from your mom and you found a female therapist. Of course, obviously. Like, clearly. Interesting. Because like, no... my, my shrink's an older dude. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, Fuck, 100% makes dad, sense. Dad, I need you, dad. I know. It's, no, seriously. It's Fuck. A, well, that's, I mean, that's how great therapy, you are essentially modeling the relationship you didn't have and you work through the issues with them, but mm. with someone who's a caring, objective mirror, let's call it, right? So anyway, so... um. It took me about 10 or 20. I found one who really fit the bill. And then we started. And dude, I like I could be the archetype of like the hard client. Because like, you know, I'm the type that I can take, I'll, I'll, I'll take one side of an argument, I'll beat you. And then I'll take your side and beat you with that side, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, mean, I, I can. And so like, but my, my therapist was so, she was very patient and very like, very, um, she did, she just like kind of would let me flail. And then like, come back with just these little questions. And it was like, <laughs> like, uh, uh, like, I'll never forget. Like when I get, it was a couple of years in about three years in, I was like, you know, I, I came here one day. I was like, I'm very frustrated. Like I, I want a girlfriend. I know I'm kind of in that spot or I, I think I'm in that spot, but why am I not like meeting the type of girl I can marry? Why am I dating? And she's like, well, where are you meeting these women? And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, 
how are you meeting them? And, and she's, I'm like, oh, and then I like at events or basically her point was every woman I was meeting was through the lens of Tucker Max, right? Sure. And and she's like, no girl that you're going to meet because you, uh, you're, quote, Tucker Max is going to be what you're looking She's not going to be a whole person. You're representing something to her. You're not an actual connection. And they, they, but she she never said that. It was all through questions, right? And then it was like, man, she took me through this whole tedious, awful journey. But doing it right therapeutically is essentially question-based. And I got to figure it all myself. And, dude, man, I fought it every – I fought therapy every step of the way, dude. Every step. Which is why, like, the last 18 months ago, I started, um, like, you know, psychedelics and plant medicine therapy. Man, that has been amazing for me because, like – what those medicines effectively do, one of the major things they do is they uh, suppress or crack your ego. And I've got a really strong ego structure. And I don't mean like that as a uh, bragging, right? Like that that's my defense is like I had to have a really strong ego structure to, to get over the loneliness and no, having no one there as a kid. And that's like what, what plant medicines have done for me is help me not either quiet or understand that that ego is not me, right? Yeah. That voice is not me. It's a part of me, but it's not who I am. I'm the observer. And, and that's Eckhart, right? That's, that's a lot I mean, of that's Eckhart Tolle. That's Buddhism. Yeah. Right, that's the Buddha. Oh, he got it from Buddha? <laughs> of course he did. What the fuck? And we're going to be paying him? A hundred percent of Eckhart Tolle's stuff is this Buddhism. This German plagiarist. <laughs> no, he's a, he's a Buddhist. He says, like, there's no— Yeah, he's— Right, I mean— But it's all—all all we're doing in modern sort of spirituality is repurposing ancient truths, Dude, right? We're repackaging 100%. ancient truths. They figured this shit out. The Buddhists figured this out. Jesus figured it out. All these people figured all this stuff out. I mean, I'm a sober guy, and it, to me, what's incredible is, like, the big book of alcohol. Anonymous is yeah. just, you know, repurpose kind of Christianity, really. It it's like 100%. Joseph Campbell's Sermon on the Mount, like, but you know what? It appeals to a drunk like me. And so I don't, I'm like, great. You know, if a Jew drunk like me can be like, wow, this Christianity tenant kind of works. It does. Perfect. It does. If you buy in, it works. So what are we talking? Like ayahuasca, DMT, no, 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 psilocybin? No, no, no. Those, that's the, so ayahuasca and DMT are the deep end of the pool. Mm. Most people should not start there. I started – well, so I went four years of, of psychoanalysis. I ended up stopping after it kind of like petered out. I, then I worked with uh, an energy healer, like a Reiki shaman type sure. person. And she was – like I was t as skeptical as you can be of that. And she did a session with it. She did a free session because she's like, I'm telling you, the universe says we have to work together. And I was like, stop selling me shit. She's like, I'll do a free session and then you can come back if you liked it. And so she did a session and felt okay, but I was like, whatever. Like, it just feels like when I meditate. And then that night, my wife, by that point I was married, my wife goes, what's what's up with you? And I was like, what? What do you mean? Because I didn't tell her I'd done this, right? Because I was ashamed about going to see a fucking shaman, energy yeah. person. And so uh, she's like, uh, no, 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 it's good. She's like, I don't know what you did today, but whatever you did, keep doing it. And I was like, fuck. I didn't even tell her then, dude. Oh, this is so funny. This is how big of an idiot I am. So I saw uh, the, her like every two weeks or once a month for like the next four, four, six months. And I felt so ashamed that I hadn't told my wife. Like, this is not like some woman I'm hooking up with. Like, I haven't <laughs> done anything wrong. But I felt so ashamed of myself and not telling her. I sat her down. Oh, God, I'm such an idiot. I sat her down one day. And I, you know, I took her by the hand. And I'm like, honey, we, you know, we have to have a, we have to talk. And I'm like, I looked her in the eye. I said, I'm seeing somebody. And then she could do her face drops. I'm like, no, 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 no. 
Not like that. Oh, I, what a fucking terrible setup. You were asking for it. Dude, I swear to God in my life, that wasn't even going through my head. Oh, my God. It was just like, she. of course, she, I mean, she, like, her heart dropped out of her ass. And I'm like, no, I'm seeing a, an energy worker. And she's like, you're fucking her? I'm like, no. She's <laughs> rubbing her hands over me. And, like, I'm holding crystals. And, Near oh, your dude. dick, Tucker. <laughs> the energy of your dick. <laughs> dude, and it was so funny. To, she ended up working with her but it, it took her like a month just to get over the association because she just assumed anyway so I worked with her for about a year that kind of ran out and then I was kind of doing nothing uh, uh, for about a year and then a buddy of mine did uh, MDMA therapy and I saw this insane change in him hmm. like it was incredible and I was like I, I had had friends of mine like famous people who I think some of them have been on your podcast if not people you know Jason Ellis no, um, I, I can't. He's private about this, so I can't. Otherwise, sure. I would fucking say, right? Of course. But w w two, but one specifically had been telling me for five years, like, dude, this is like, this will help you a lot. And I just, I couldn't even hear him, you know? Because um, I remember the conversations objectively, but I just, I don't know why. It was like nothing connected with me. I saw the change in my friend, and then I was like, I'm in. And so I went and did MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. I did a session with uh, a woman named uh, her, her whatever stage name is Ann Other. She wrote a book called Trust, Surrender, Receive, uh, which is on Amazon. And, uh, dude, I mean, the first time, I had never done drugs recreationally. Never. I had never done ecstasy, nothing, alcohol and women. That's it. And so the first time that shit hit, I was like, what is this? This, like, I felt the deepest love. I didn't even know you could feel love like this, man. I didn't know these emotions were possible, man. Like, I had never felt anything like this. Are you getting it in, in an IV? No, no. MDMA, uh, it took orally. It's, orally. it's just like ecstasy you would take. You know, it's the active ingredient. It's uh, No, and right. It's Molly. But yeah, exactly. It's a pure MDMA. And do you ever source like where they're getting it from? So at this point, yeah, like I've gone upstream and I know the chemist and all, like I'm, but Got I'm like it. deep in that world though, you know? So like I'm an unusual person, but most, it's still illegal. Right right now it's in phase three cl clinical trials. It's almost certainly going to be approved for um, prescription medicinal use. There are actually, I know some people opening clinics because it's been given a, a breakthrough the therapy designation. And so, like, I know a dude opening a clinic in Austin in August. And so it's going to be very limited at the beginning. And then, but the numbers are amazing, dude. Like, the, the data on this stuff is insane. And so, this is, I'm telling you, MDMA assisted psychotherapy is the first one that's going to hit. And uh, this is going to blow the doors off most people, dude. It is absolutely, I mean, it, it, it is the thing that opened me up to myself and to feeling my emotions. I just had a level I could not get through, through talking. And this stuff, man, it was, I wrote, a, if you Google Tucker Max MDMA, I wrote a huge, like an obnoxiously long article about my first two sessions. And really just describing from my point of view, what happened, what I felt like, all the realizations, all this stuff that came up, man, it was nuts. And like, I mean, almost overnight, man, I went from angry. I Angry was the dominant emotion in my life, but you, angry, anger is a secondary emotion. Anger was pushing away sadness, depression, shame, fear, whatever, right? The anger was almost gone immediately. And then I was able to start feeling the rest of the stuff, which sucks. Don't get me wrong. But the way to get past it is you got to feel it and let it go, right? And so uh, I'm a year and a half in. Then I, uh, I did probably four or five MDMA sessions. Then I moved to psilocybin. 
And that's coming in the pipeline behind MDMA. It'll be legal in maybe four or five years. And maybe quicker in Oregon, depending on how some ballot stuff goes. But, uh, dude, that was, like, phew, amazing, man. It re- it essentially rewired my brain, you know? Like, it, it's what it does. Like, it, it psilocybin, uh, it resets what's called a default mode network. And so it essentially creates an open – and, again, I'm being – this is a very loose explanation. But it creates a, uh, a space for you to re- experience and rethink a lot of things and essentially cuts like a lot of old habits and then you can build new ones like that's Mm -hmm. just a very simplistic explanation but man those two things in combination just fucking changed the game and you know now i've moved on i do um uh, lsd therapy has been amazing for me i I only do this stuff therapeutically i'm still i don't know how you can take this shit and go to a concert and shit with people fuck man i take even three grams of mushrooms and i'm on my fucking ass three grams is a shitload dude my first session (laughs) i did eight and a half that's a hero's dose they call it five and a half is a hero's dose seven and a half superheroes eight and a half was like but i had such a strong ego structure that like i had to take that much to get past it yeah, it was bad. So when you like take the MDMA, or what happens between about how long does it take to kick in? Thirty 40, minutes? Yeah, thirty-five. 40, yeah, 30. And is there therapy going on until then, or is she like just wait here? <laughs> so the, no, there's a couple ways to do it, right? But ma- mainly, what you do is you take it, you wait, you, you put on an eye shade, and you lay back on your sofa, right, or on the therapist's sofa. Oh, terrifying! Then, <laughs> waiting for it to kick in. Ah. Oh. Well, so ideally what you should be doing is just like meditating, resting, relax, which is really is like impossible, right, of course, for me. And then it once it hits, man, I'll never forget the first session when it hit. It was like, oh, my God, it sneaks up on you. And all of a sudden, you are totally relaxed and in love. It's fucking nuts, man. And then stuff starts coming up, right? So basically what MDMA does is it like, your, triggers your brain to dump all its serotonin so you feel safe and uh and and stable and and you feel just totally fine your brain is like feels as good as it can feel and so uh that allows uh, uh essentially your uh your brain to bring up old trauma so now it can process it right and so a lot of times what happens is shit gets actually real intense like i mean my, especially my early sessions were incredibly intense like a lot of stuff came up but you feel capable of handling it right and so if you want to talk then uh, you can talk absolutely. For me personally, most of my stuff was somatic. So meaning, like my, I was like basically shaking the whole time. Like, a, imagine like a seizure but slow motion, right? And because uh, the way I guess I dealt with a lot of my trauma was just forcing it inwards, mm-hmm. right, and just not feeling it. And so talking, what for me was a distraction. But I've seen sessions, uh, uh, other people like I've sat with. I didn't guide friends, but I'll be there with them. And we're there just blah, 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 blah the whole fucking time. It's like, a, it's like a therapy session. But then, like, they'll come out and be like, dude, that was like five years of therapy in, in, in six hours. Right. You know, because you're so open and you're so accessible, you can dive into and feel and see and understand things that essentially your brain is just not willing to let you experience in a normal state. Do you have to deal with the dump the next day? Of- For MDMA, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, But there's ways to, to deal with that, man. 5-HTP and yeah, taking I, supplements. What I find is SAMe is a better uh, supplement. And so a lot of times, like what the good guys I know is they'll they'll give you a shitload of vitamin C ahead of time because it helps your, I guess, uh, neural connections. And then take that and then the, the, they'll give you SAMe, uh, like, a, like four or five days of it. 
and you're basically fine. The other thing that I've started doing that works really well for me is I'll do MDMA in the morning and then psilocybin in the afternoon of the same day. And it's, I mean, that's a full 12-hour day of dealing with shit, but MD, in my, at least for me, and I've seen for a lot of other people, psilocybin acts as a serotonin antagonist. So it basically stimulates your brain to produce more. Mm. And so as long as you're eating the right stuff, uh, bananas, some other stuff, then like you, like I, I'll, I'll have an incredibly intense day. And the next day I feel like 90, 90% as good as I did the day before. Like I feel almost back to normal because the two things and then also what's cool is they work so differently dude psilocybin is so fucking weird man it is just all symbolic it's all non-linear it's not nothing analytical logical verbal at all and so mdma is very analytical logical like you can kind of stay in your left brain psilocybin is all right brain so when i do a day of that I get so much work done and i come out the next day feeling like i can basically go to work if i want to what I, you know, it's interesting. I um I, I interviewed Aubrey and we were talking about and he was talking about ayahuasca. And I said, as a drug addict, I'm in search of a vaccine. Right. Right. Like I want to do it and be all better. And I said, my suspicion is is that it's but a preview or a like glimpse into something. And then it's completely contingent on what you do to maintain that with this new information. Yeah, it's called integration. So, so this is, um, yeah, I, I, I've written a lot about this, and I have a lot of friends coming to me now because I'm like, I'm not, I haven't been doing this 20 years. Like, I'm not one of the people that that's like in this space, but I just stepped in therapeutically, and so like a lot of people, and I, you know, write about these things, and, and I'm willing to be honest about it. When a lot, I know what, dude, I know so many well-known people who like do this stuff, but won't talk about it publicly. I'm not judging them, man, but I just feel like that's bullshit. Like this Mm. changed my life. And I I couldn't get up in the morning and look at myself in the mirror knowing that this medicine had so drastically helped me, knowing so many other people are suffering from the same stuff and not talk about it. That I just, I personally can't do that. So I get a lot of people approaching me asking questions. Um, That the big thing I always tell people is, listen, medicine, the medicine is great. None of it's a magic pill. None of it will actually do any work for you. None of it, right? It's not like an antibiotic, like mm-hmm. that, like gets rid of the uh, the bacteria. No, no, no. All the medicine does is open a space uh, that you can't often open on your own for you to do your emotional work. You still have to do the work. You still have to go in and feel the feelings. Like, dude, I'll give you an example. A friend of mine did MDMA therapy. He wasn't ready. Like he did it too quickly. And he basically, it, the cool thing about MDMA is why I always tell people to start with it because it's always your friend. It's so gentle. It's so soft. If it gets too intense, you can like sit up and take off your eye mask and the impact goes from a 10 to a 2, right? And so he basically took his eye mask off, sat, like walked around the whole time. He essentially, he was, the emotions coming up were too much. They were overwhelming him. He was not ready or willing to feel them. Mm. And so he pushed them all down. And so, like, the impact the, the medicine had on him was pretty negligible. It just didn't do much, right? Because he wasn't willing to sit and process that. Whereas I was in a space when I first did it, I was willing to sit and process. Like, I was willing to feel the feelings I didn't want to feel. That's, I mean, you want to sum up what all this stuff does? It gives you the opportunity to feel feelings you don't want to feel so that you can process them and then let them go. Yeah, it's interesting. I I talked to my friend Jason Ellis about his ayahuasca trip, and he said, so it forces you to look at the thing that is most painful in your life and the thing you're most in fear of. 
He's like, and you face it until it has less and less power over you. He said, and then what was revealed, he's like, I couldn't tell from the first day, but I could tell better in the second day of doing it with the shaman. Right. Was when the shaman would change the song, the memory would fade and something new would come in. Like it was triggered by his chance. Mm-hmm. So he have you know, being a shaman, knew that like, okay, this part of the trip lasts 40 minutes yeah. and I'll keep this beat and this song and this kind of blowing the tobacco smoke in his face. Mm. And then as to ease him out, I ch- then changed the song. He said, and by the way, then it goes away and then it comes back just with a new face, but it's the same root of that pain and mm-hmm. you're forced to look at it again. And how, how often are you doing this? It depends. Yeah. So my last session was uh, the day after Thanksgiving. I haven't done anything since because it was a super intense. I used a, a new medicine that I hadn't used before, a pretty intense one, advanced one, and it fucking dropped me on my ass, dude. And so I'm two months out, and I probably – it'll be at least another month. Like if I do something really intense, then I try to take 90 days mm. to integrate, right? Because, I mean, it, it's like – it's almost like imagine uh, – I don't know. Imagine like – I'm trying to think of a good – imagine you get a big, big-ass, thick book to read, right? You don't read it in a week or two weeks, right? Especially if it's really intense and there's a lot of knowledge in there. It can take you months to read. Yeah. And so, like, um, I think early on I went – I went fast because I had done so much talk therapy. I knew – intellectually, I knew everything about my brain. I knew I knew the map of my emotions. I just hadn't felt any of it. And so, because I was focusing on MD, MDMA – MDMA essentially helps you feel your emotions, right? And so I could do a lot of sessions fairly close together, a month, two months, uh, because it was just feeling all the emotions that I knew about but I hadn't felt. Then it took me about a year to get through that phase. And then I started adding other medicines like psilocybin. And now I'm kind of at a point where I'm starting to find new stuff. Like I'm really starting to – I'm still in my healing journey, but um, I'm getting – to, to points that I never got to in in talk therapy. I like to divide, and I, I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me like, like really what these medicines, they do two things. They help you heal and they expand your mind. And those can sometimes overlap, but I see them at least in me as very different things. And so for example, MDMA is almost entirely a healing medicine. It's not much of a mind expansion medicine. Whereas like ayahuasca uh, is mainly, in my experience, a, he- uh, a mind expansion medicine, although it has great healing powers. I, I, For most people, I don't recommend starting with ayahuasca because that is a deep end, man. And if you haven't done a lot of work, uh, therapeutic work, or what, if you have done a lot of therapeutic work, then maybe it's a good starting point. But man, it, it will bring up dark shit and shove it in your face for a long time. You know? Yeah, Ryan, Ryan and I talked about this. Like, It's wonderful how plant medicine has really come into the forefront and there are some really, you know, people that are big proponents of it, but you can't be cavalier. Oh, no, no, you no. You can't. I, uh, when I first did this, my instinct was, oh my God, everyone's got to do it. And then I realized very quickly, I, I never tell anyone to do it, ever. Yeah. I, all I do is talk about my experience. And the good and the bad. And then people, it's so funny, man. It's like, uh, like I'll see somebody and they'll uh, they'll be like, dude, you seem so different. Your energy's different. Like you used to be an asshole. I couldn't stand being around you. Now I like, kind of like you. And I've had so many people say that to me the last year. It's like uh, both comical and also a little depressing. But, um, and then they'll, they'll be like, what, you know, are you on like a new diet? And I'm like, carnivore diet? I'm like, no, dude. Like, and then I'm like, therapy. And then like, 
it's funny, like 90% of people you use the T word and they're like, or trauma, they're like, they don't like, they'll listen politely, but they don't really want to hear more. But the ones that like really want to hear, then like I let them ask. And if they're like, oh man, do you know someone or whatever? Then it's like, okay, if I know them well and I think that they might be ready, then I'll refer them to, you know, whatever. I know a bunch of guides now. And so I'll refer them to someone I think, you know, might be able to help them. But I don't even connect them. I'm like, here's their email. Here's, you know, the the, the how to contact them. You've got to initiate that. And then like you gotta set up the call. You gotta get on the call. You gotta decide you're gonna do it. You gotta go, you gotta put a few barriers in front of people because if you go into this work and you're not ready, it can it, there's a price to pay. It can fuck you up. Like it's not Yeah. It is this is not anything don't do this casually. Like I'm telling you this even people who like I know people like, "Oh, I used to do LSD all the time in college." And then they do LSD therapy, they're like, "What the fuck, man? That is a totally different experience." Set and setting and intention make a huge difference. It is essentially 90 plus percent of the impact. Any interest in ketamine? Uh, yes. So um, I have used ketamine once uh, because ketamine is the best thing for uh, – there's uh, on-label use is suicidal ideation. So if right. like someone's going to kill themselves, ketamine is one of the best things there is for getting that out of their mind at least for a few weeks. Also chronic pain, ketamine is amazing for those two things. And off-label use is ego destruction. Like, I have a very strong ego. It is a big part of what I have to deal with emotionally. And um, that's why I did that uh, super high-dose psilocybin. I did a pretty high-dose LSD. Those were both intense, but I really don't think I had real ego death in those. And so I ended up doing a ketamine session. And, um, yeah, dude, like, if that doesn't kill your ego, nothing will, man. Because it's it's dissociative. It's that the entire point of the medicine uh, is to disconnect you from your emotions and yourself. And it it is a true – dude, it was the craziest thing, man. It was the – okay. So uh, I did uh, ketamine and not that much, man. I did a pretty low whatever. And as soon as – man, it hits, right? It goes – because it's IV, right? It goes fast. And you can do ketamine legally. It's in clinics. This is not, you don't have to find underground guys. Yeah, now like they the have nose, the nose spray right. was approved. Yeah, yeah, no, I went to like an actual clinic clinic and IV and it was all legal and above board. And um, dude, it hit me. And all of a sudden everything starts, like all shapes and colors start get really fragmented. Like, like the borders in here, they go like that and they go black. And then it's like, I heard this voice in my head. I heard, they tricked you. This this is your new reality. You're stuck here. You're gonna die. Oh fuck! No, Kevin, run! No, see, not like it is in my head. And then, but then I, I, I said, no, I'm surrendering. That is I went so. In. I that'd be it for me. I would be the one that lost their fucking mind. I can't. I'd be like, that's it. It's a wrap. <laughs> well, when you're in, you're in, dude. There's no <sighs> coming out of ketamine. But you know, I didn't realize it till a few days later. That was my ego dying. Because it wasn't me thinking that. That was a voice I heard. It was the first time ever in my life I actually truly saw and experienced my ego as a distinct thing for me. And I was like, oh, my fucking. And I didn't even realize until a few days later. It was like, oh, man. And now it's like now I get it. Now I understand all the shit I read about ego and all that stuff. None of it made any sense to me before. Because the ego's trick is to convince you that you are it. But you're not. It's just a part of you. I'll never forget that as long as I live, man. It was the craziest experience. Because I was like, fuck, man, I am going to die. You're, uh, a, a buddy of mine, um, 
this guy Dan Engel, you might have heard of. He's one of the big guys in this space. You should have him on your podcast. Yeah. yeah he's amazing. He, t- he gave me some advice. If you get the invitation to die, take it. And I had no fucking idea what he was talking about, right? Because like I'm thinking, this happened on mushrooms and LSD both times. And I was like, no, I'm cool. I want to stay alive. I get what he meant now. It's because you're, you're not going to die. That's your ego dying, not you dying, mm. right? And so I didn't really take the invitation on ketamine. I just surrendered to it, which I guess is close enough. And so like, I don't know if I had full ego death or not. I think I did. Whatever it was, man, it was the first time in my life. And then, so that was the one two months ago. And... um Dude, my life has been straight up since then. Like everything has gotten better in every single way. It's dude, it's amazing, dude. But it's like like ketamine for, from a recreational standpoint and that's my only I mean, obviously I know it in a clinical setting, but from what I've seen in movies and friends, my buddy Jude who was on the show used to use it very recreationally and it like you know, we know it to be in large doses a horse tranquilizer. So, like, does it knock you on your ass? Like, oh, yeah. You, no, dude, I was done. I was out. Do you know you're you? Or are you, like, in another? Mm. You couldn't walk around. Oh, fuck no. Dude, no, no. no. It, it, when I say black, I mean, you you, you don't quite go into a cage. It depends on the dosages, right? I've never done it recreationally. Only, you know, in a clinical setting with the doctor and their nurse and whatever. Um, uh, dude, it was, no, you are not. You are not mobile. This is right. this is a dissociative. Dude, it's all it can also be used as a, as an anesthetic in surgery. Right. That's how dissociative the properties are. So like you can I can give you ketamine to do surgery on you and you're not going to remember it or feel it, right? So like it is very much uh the only reason I did it was for the ego stuff. Like it's not I would on the list of medicines for people to do Ketamine is basically at the bottom, man. It's down there with iboga, like the shit that actually can kill you, right? You only want to do these things for very specific reasons under very specific care. Like iboga is amazing. If you are like a 20-year, you know, heroin addict, iboga will get you off. It'll get you a window where you have no more physical cravings. If you have serious, like, ego structure problems, ketamine will fucking break them. Right. Uh, so like, but otherwise, like, like my wife doesn't have those problems. She's probably not going to be doing ketamine. Right. <laughs> you know, any temptation to microdose? Yes. Microdosing psilocybin is amazing. And do you do that? Yes. Every day? No, you can't do it every day. Um, the best uh, dosing schedule that I, I do, I mean, I'm, I, I, I do it now. I didn't do it today. I did, what's today? Monday? I did Saturday. So I, I do one day on at least two days off. And then one day back on, sometimes I'll go three days off, sometimes mm-hmm. even longer. But, uh, and, and a very small dose, like 50 to 75 milligrams. Like and if you feel it, you did too much. Yes. It should be, the whole point of microdosing is it's sub-perceptible, right? You just feel the impacts, not the medicine. So like, it, dude, if I showed you, I, I, didn't, I didn't bring microdose with me because <laughs> that'd be weird. But if I showed you, you would think it was like dust. Like it's a tiny amount, dude. Mm. It's like, it's hardly even uh, like an actual thing. And so, uh, but like, when I microdose psilocybin, I tried I didn't like microdosing LSD. It just doesn't work for me. Psilocybin is amazing, dude. I just feel like the best version of myself. Like, you know, if you wake up and you're like, everything's just going great today. I just feel, it's like that, yeah. except you constructed it. It, it. Dude, it's, I have friends who are too afraid to do med, like a serious dose of medicine, but they microdose and they're still seeing amazing benefits and changes. They only microdose. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, it, look, it's such a gray area for sober guys, and so I, I'm not quite sure. I, I think of it like red wine. Like, red wine's good for your heart. It's just not worth the advantages for me. I get it. I get it. The disadvantages, perhaps, I, are dude, too great. I, I would bring Dan Engel on your podcast. Yeah. Dan, like, I know a ton of people in this field. Uh, Dan is one of the ones who I trust the most. Like, when I am I have questions about medicine, I go to Dan with it, Right. And and uh, he is he's he's a psychiatrist, right? So me- medical board doctor, but also uh, like uh, trained in ayahuasca shamanism in the jungle, and it, like he this dude's done and seen everything, right? And he's very open about it. Ask him. I, I I'm pretty sure that at his he's one the one I know opening the clinic. I'm pretty sure at their clinic they're going to be working with people who are recovering addicts. He used to have an ibogaine clinic uh, in Mexico, mm. and so they worked with a ton of um, recovering uh, people. He has a deep expertise in that field. Any interest in TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation? Have you heard about it? No. It seems it's interesting. There's this great comedian, Gary Goldman, who had that, um, he had a new special that Judd Apatow produced called The Great Depression. And what he talks about, he was like, I was so deeply depressed that I, my ketamine doctor turned me away. <laughs> wow. Yes. After months, he's like, mind you, my insurance doesn't cover this. So I was handing him $800 a pop three days a week. I've never heard of that. So much so that the doctor finally said, I can't ethically give this to you anymore because it's not helping you. Yeah, no, clearly. And he's like, right, but when I'm here, I feel great. Like for the day or for the, you know, three quarters of a day I'm here, it's great. And then the depression comes flooding back in. He's like, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, no, you got to deal with the underlying issues. Yeah, and and he had done so much work. And so finally he got, and I'm not sure whether he did, I think he did a, a version of electroshock therapy, but what TMS is, is it's a very specific it's targeting your brain of like a nine volt battery level of current mm-hmm. to specific. They do specific protocols, either an anxiety or a depression protocol. And basically, and I had this physicist uh, brain doctor on named Safi Bakal on the pod. And he said, what we're finding more in depression and things that occur in the brain is that it's an actual injury. Like the brain is injured. Trauma and, will do that. It'll yeah. create yeah circuits you can't get out of, basically. Yes. Yeah, loops. That's why mushrooms work so well, dude. Yeah. No, because they they reset the default mode network. But some people might be on that, which sounds like... I I mean, it's basically kind of like a brain reset. It's very specific targeting with the magnetic pulses. And it's, you know, for someone like me who's afraid of taking in, you know, anything that's going to chemically alter me, I'm almost more, that is more appealing than... Try it. But I, yeah, I mean, but then again, I'm like, oh, I I guess I'm kind of happy, right, Kevin? (laughs) I can't tell. I I will tell you, and I'm sure Dan will tell you the same thing. I will tell you that MDMA uh, and psilocybin, neither of which, especially when used therapeutically, um, have shown to have really any addictive properties. Mm. You know, like yeah. I'm not saying you can't get hooked on ecstasy at clubs or something. Like, but yeah, I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna go to an ecstasy like uh, clinic. I'm gonna go to the only one, and they're gonna hand me like blue pills with like Lamborghinis on them. I'm like, what the no, fuck is this? I don't, I don't think they will. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a great time. You know, I the only time I ever experienced ecstasy, I did it alone. Uh-huh. How sad is that? Yeah, you want to talk sad. about depressing? Yeah, that is. I did it alone because I was just at my apartment and no one called me back that night. And I had this pill that yeah. I wondered what would do for a while. So I went to a strip club by myself. It was terrible. Oh, my God. On I, E. I know. I thought it'd be great. What a mix. Yeah, right? Not good. No. 
No, yeah, actually, I feel like that would be depressing. <laughs> Trust yeah. me, I got plenty of those stories. Um, okay, last question. The thing I ask everyone on the podcast, what are your one or two Tucker Max commandments, truths that you have discovered that you'd want to impress upon someone else? Well, so I don't, uh, uh, I'm going to answer the question. I don't ever assume anything I do or say anyone else should should do them. So I don't try to impress anything on anyone else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lesson that might be one is that I, I do my own work only. I never tell anyone else what they should do. Um, and I share my work. And if they can use my work as an example on their journey, that's great. But uh, I never assume my journey is anyone else's because uh, it's not. Everyone must walk their own path, right? And maybe parts of my, my journey can help others walk their path. Uh, but uh, I never assume it does. But if there's one lesson or one thing that I live by, I mean, I know exactly what it is. I am always going to stand up and speak my truth. Uh, I'm always going to diligently work to uncover it, right? Because God knows, man, I've done so much work to uncover it. And it's so funny, man. I feel like, like I'm light years away from where I was 10 years ago in that hotel room in Tempe, right? And I feel like I've just started. I honestly feel like I'm at the beginning and I've done so much work, but it's cool. Cause I'm like at a point where it's like, Oh, now the work's starting to actually get fun. Mm. It's starting to get really rewarding. Like I feel like I've come through the worst parts, the hardest, maybe not the hardest parts, some of the worst parts, but, um, but it's really starting to trend really up in, in a kind of a great way. Cause it, I'll tell anyone doing this work, it almost always gets worse before it gets better, you know? Um, but anyway, so it's starting to get better, but that's the thing, man, is I will always uncover and speak my truth. Because otherwise, like, what am I doing, man? Like, yeah. what's the point of life if I'm not going to work to uncover and speak it and live it? You know? I don't understand the point. Love it, man. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. That was it. That was Tucker. Not bad, right? Come on. Listen, guys, this is a weird time right now, and especially because... You know, I'm trying to interview podcast guests while also observing the quarantine and honoring that. So if I perhaps like maybe didn't do a traditional curious episode in the following weeks and maybe did something more specific, maybe, I don't know, feel free to email me guys at peckagent at gmail.com. That's peckagent at gmail.com. And Email me your suggestions as long as they have nothing to fucking do with Drake and Josh. <laughs> like, w- with all due respect and love and care, you know, that's, I, I just feel like I, I might be better served right now. Um, I don't know. Maybe I can do a cool, like, pandemic pod or just something um, to help get you guys through the next couple weeks in any way, give you a slight reprieve from the daily stress of looking at the stock market and Twitter and turn on the curious podcast and get some laughs. Or maybe you're just like, Josh, just keep interviewing people. That's what you do. That's why we subscribed. I don't know, but feel free to email me peckagent at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for what you want to hear over the next couple weeks, love you guys. Hope you're safe and healthy and cozy and streaming things on Disney Plus, whom I work for, I hope, if I still have a job in a couple months. Okay. Love you guys. Bye.